Now, this is Paul's message before the mob. And he recounts here his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent experience which brought him to Jerusalem. Now, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship to deliver himself from the awful whipping that would have been given a prisoner here. Now, that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Now, Paul speaks to the chief captain in Greek, but now he addresses this Jewish mob in his and their native tongue, Hebrew. And the minute that he began to speak to them in Hebrew, the tongue which they loved and the tongue which they understood, they knew he's one of us. He's a soul brother. He's one of us. And they listened to him. Now listen to Paul here. Here's a great message of the apostle Paul. He says, "Men, brethren, and fathers. Men, brethren. <laughs> They're brethren. They belong to the same race. And then he shows respect for the elder man and fathers. Hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Now he appeals to the mob. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And the minute he began to speak in Hebrew, it was just like a raging wind dying down. It was like the waves of the sea as they became quiet. It was the same way as when our Lord said to the waves, Be still. And they were still. This crowd now, this mob, they're quiet. They're listening to a man that he's one of them. Now listen to him. He gives his history. I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. Now, here begins a persecution of Paul by the Jewish leaders, by the religious leaders of the day. Paul had been one of them. He'd been a Pharisee. And one of the reasons that he had so much sympathy with them and was so loving toward them is because he'd been one of them and he knew exactly how they felt and before his conversion. And now he wants to win them. And so he gives them now first his background. And Paul had a tremendous background. Tarsus was the center of actually Greek learning of that day. The finest Greek university in Paul's day was in Tarsus, not in Athens or Corinth. They'd gone to seed, but Tarsus was a thriving city and a Greek city. Now, he'd not only been probably brought up in that university and had the Greek background, but also he'd been in Jerusalem and had studied under Gamaliel. And friends, he'd done his doctor's work, if you please. He had worked on his doctorate in Jerusalem under the outstanding scholar of that day, Gamaliel. They're listening to him now. Listen to him also. Verse 4 of chapter 22 of Acts. And I persecuted this way. Paul didn't call the church or the followers of Christ or Christians. He didn't use that term. 
He used the term they would understand, and he understood. And it's a good term. I think still a good one. And I persecuted this way. What is this way? Well, it's the way, the truth, and the life. It's the person of the Lord Jesus. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Now, what he's saying is I have the same background that you folk have, and I know how you feel. I did the same thing. Now, he goes on. As also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light, round about me, and I fell under the ground, and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, Paul is giving his experience, you see. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. I think you could have heard a pin drop in the crowd there that day. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. Now, I want you to notice something, if you'll recall back when we looked at the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus. You will recall that at that time, when they're given the record of this man's conversion, that the thing that happened was that they heard a voice. And now we are told here they didn't hear a voice, but they heard not the voice of him that spake with me. This is something that I think is quite interesting here because of the fact that it looks like that you got a contradiction. And actually, you don't have a contradiction at all. The men which journeyed with him, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. That's what you have in Acts 9, 7. And here it says, And they heard not the voice of him that spake with me. And here it's hearing a voice, but seeing no man. What actually it means, they heard, but they never understood what the voice said. All they did was just hear a voice. They were not able to discern what was said. I think you need to note that, because here again is where the critic likes to pounce in, and he has just a peck of fun. But there's no fun here for him. Verse 10, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there shall be told thee all things that are pointed for thee to do. Verse 11, And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou should know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. 
For thou shalt be as witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. Now, notice Paul was given a private interview with the Lord Jesus, and I believe that was the time he spent out on that Arabian desert. Now, will you notice verse 16, And now why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and saw him saying unto thee, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I am prisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death. And I kept the raiment of them that slew him. You see, Paul never forgot that he was present at the stoning of Stephen and had charge of it. And it left an indelible impression on his mind and prepared him actually, for his own conversion. Now, verse 21, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word, then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it's not fit that he should live. Now, he's mentioned Gentiles, because Paul has been out speaking to the Gentiles, and they've known that. And they've heard that, and the minute he mentions that, it was just like lighting a fuse, and they'll not hear him any longer. And as they cried out, cast off their clothes, and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle, bad that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Now, you see, the minute he lapsed over into the Hebrew tongue, and Paul spoke in the Hebrew tongue, the captain stood there speechless. He didn't know what was said. He didn't understand Hebrew. And all he could do was that when they broke out in this rage against Paul, he took him inside and thought that since he's a prisoner, he should scourge him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, you remember Paul began this. He's misunderstood all around. They thought he was an Egyptian. He was not. And they thought he'd brought Trophimus into the temple, and he hadn't done that. But notice what he is. He speaks Greek, but he's a Hebrew. And also, he's a Roman citizen. Now, he's appealing to that. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, said, Take heed what thou doest, for this man's a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea, I'm a Roman. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was born free. <laughs> How wonderful. This captain, you see, was an ex-slave. And he'd saved up his money, or somebody else had saved it, or he got money some way, and he bought his freedom. And now he's advanced in the Roman army. And he's amazed that here's a prisoner who's a Roman citizen and is born free. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he'd bound him, 
on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down, set him before them. Now he's going to have a hearing. Why, here's a remarkable individual. He speaks Greek. He's a learned man. He not only is that, he's not a common crook by any means, and he's a Hebrew. And he's not only that, but he's a Roman citizen. And so this captain says, we're just not going to treat him as a common criminal. We're going to hear what the charges are. So now they're preparing for that, and they're going now to bring in the charge against him. Now, friends, as we come today to the 23rd chapter of the book of Acts, you'll recall last time we saw Paul had gone up to Jerusalem. There's always been some controversy, difference of opinion about whether he should have gone or not, or at least whether he was in the will of God. I contend he was entirely in the will of God. And I think as we move on, that again and again, it'll just pop out that this man's in the will of God. Now, it's true he's been arrested, and it's true that he's having a pretty rough time. Now, when we come to the 23rd chapter, we find that he now is arrested in Jerusalem. And the Roman captain who had arrested him, put him in prison, was just going to beat him. But when he found out he was a Roman citizen, he refrained from that. And he was amazed to find that Paul was a Hebrew, that he spoke Greek, and he was a Roman citizen. He certainly was a cosmopolitan man, this man Paul. Now, the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, wanted to try him. And so Paul makes a futile attempt here to explain his position and his conduct to the Sanhedrin. And the Lord encourages Paul, and then we see the plot to murder Paul, and that causes him to be removed to Caesarea for trial before Felix. Now let's move into this area here, for it's a remarkable section. We're following actually a travelogue, and it's a thrilling account. And I trust that as you go along, you can see the hand of God in the life of this man. And the same one that moved in the life of Paul wants to move in your life and my life today. That's the glory and wonder of it all, friends, that right down here where you and I walk in a commonplace way, in one way we are living a very humble existence. Many of us today, we have a very simple routine of life, and yet God is concerned and interested in us, and God wants to give us that leading and guiding that you and I need today in the complexities that face us in our contemporary culture. And believe me, we need those today. There's no question that we need God today on the scene. Now, A great many people go to extremes. They are trying to have some great emotional revolutionary experience. I don't think you'll have that. You might have, but I doubt whether you will. But it's by simple faith that you come to Christ and you trust him and you walk with him and he'll give you leading and guiding and direction.
Now let's follow Paul. I'm reading Acts 23, verse 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, Paul is before the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the council are there. Now, this is his defense. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Paul wanted to speak, and the high priest wasn't about to let him speak until he was ready to hear him. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited sepulcher, or whited wall, I should say. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law." Now, you see, no man could be at all punished until a judgment has been handed in. Just because he's been arrested and accused of a certain crime, that granted no liberty in that day to those who had arrested him. You see, in that day, Roman law granted a great deal of justice. Actually, although the trial of Jesus makes you recognize how Roman law even could be twisted and turned, and that the important thing is not so much a system or a law, but rather the ones who are conducting it or in charge of it. A great many people today feel like that if we change our form of government, or we change our party that's in power, whichever it is, they always feel like if we just make a change, why, that would solve our problems. Well, that never solved our problems, you see. The man who began this system had a great consciousness of God. And although a man like Thomas Jefferson, he was a deist, you'd not call him a Christian by our measurement today, but at least he had a conviction that the Bible was the Word of God, and he respected it. Well, we don't have that today, and then we wonder why the system won't work. We think we need to change the system. You know what we need? We need to change the man today. It's man that needs changing and not the system. And so here is this high priest, and he has Paul smitten on the mouth. And Paul could speak very strongly. This idea that Paul was some sort of a pantywaist and that humility means that you're sort of a Mr. Milk Toast is a big mistake. Actually, humility and meekness means that you're doing God's will. That's what it means, regardless of the price. And I think Paul is a meek, humble man, but he's not about to take this lying down. And he calls this man a whited wall. And he says, you're judging me according to the Mosaic law, but you're breaking the law. And that reveals that Paul knew the law, you see, that a man could not be condemned or punished until a judgment had been handed down. Now, will you notice? And they that stood by said, revilest thou God's high priest? Now, Paul didn't know he was the high priest. Someone asked me the question. Paul should have known that he was the high priest. He should have. But you see, apparently suffering from eye trouble, he couldn't see. Certainly he'd know the high priest. This man knew the Mosaic law, knew the ritual. He was a Pharisee and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, will you notice, 
Then said Paul, I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it's written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. You see, Paul knew the law. He knew every detail of it. And the law had said you would respect your rulers. That's something else that we've forgotten about today. I personally believe that the president of the United States, regardless of who he is and how bad he is, ought never to be made a subject of a cartoon, that he ought never to be ridiculed. It's the office that we should respect. And we today, as human beings, need to respect authority, even when that authority sometimes is bad. Paul said, obey the powers that be. And the interesting thing is that Nero was on the throne in Rome at that time, and he was a madman. Now, verse 6, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. We're getting much more information, you see now, about Paul and about his background. Now, his father was a Pharisee and apparently a wealthy man of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question. You see, here are two parties in there. One believes the resurrection, one does not. And that doesn't mean the resurrection of Jesus they believed in, but they believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed it, the Sadducees denied it. And Paul turns it into a theological argument between fundamentalists and liberals. And my friend, you can always get them to argue. There's never a time when you can't get them at each other's throats. And so Paul is doing that here in his defense. And when he had so said, I'm now reading verse 7 of the 23rd of Acts, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. The Pharisees actually now come to his defense. They find out he's a Pharisee, and they defend him. And when there arose a great dissension, this is the first time Luke has used it quite like that, and I'm of the opinion this was the worst dissension that is recorded in the book of Acts among any group. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle." Now, Paul, again, his life was in danger, and this Roman captain reaches down and saves him. Now, this is a time when we say that you should not mix church and state, but the state is protecting the apostle Paul at this particular point, and that is quite proper. Now, verse 11, "...and the night following the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul." For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now again, I must call your attention to this, that 
we believe Paul is in the will of God and that it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. And all that the Spirit of God ever did was, Paul, this is what's going to greet you there. And the Spirit of God is just saying, Paul, maybe you better not go. But it's God's will for him to go. Now, will you notice the Lord made it very clear to him. He said, you're going to testify of me in Jerusalem, and you're going to bear witness in Rome. Now, this is God's method of the way that it is to be done. Because Paul had never had this opportunity before, either in Jerusalem or in the city of Rome. He hadn't even been to Rome at this time. So, this man is in the will of God. And when the Lord appeared to him, he didn't say, Now, look, Paul, I told you not to come up here. You'd get in trouble. And the Lord says, You're in trouble because this is the way that I've got you here, and it's the way I'm going to get you over to Rome. And it was God's method. Now, verse 12, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they'd killed Paul. And I imagine they got pretty hungry and thirsty before it was over with. And will you notice? And they were more than... 40, which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we'll eat nothing until we've slain Paul. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. Now, this was a plot to put Paul to death. Now, it's well that the Spirit of God, or that the Lord himself, has made it clear to Paul that he's going all the way to Rome, that that was in God's plan, and he's going to Rome. Verse 16, now, of Acts 23, And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who had something to say unto thee. You see, Paul is exerting his right as a Roman citizen, and he has a perfect right to do that and to use that position that he has. And now his nephew, and Paul, you see, had relatives there, sister, lived in Jerusalem. Then the chief captain took him by the hand, went with him aside privately, and asked him, What is that that thou hast to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow under the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. Well, now this captain is warned. 
I'd have you note something here because we have today a group of super pious folk. I, every now and then, get a letter from some person. I'm sure they're sincere, and they tell me I should not go to a doctor. I should trust the Lord. Well, I trust the Lord, but I think he's to use doctors. Now, it'd been very easy for Paul to have told his nephew, you just run along. I'm trusting the Lord. He'll deliver me. Well, maybe he would have, but this is the way Paul did it. And I think this is the way God wants it done. I think he wants us to use every means that are available that are our hand today. And that does not mean we're not trusting him. It means that in so doing, we are trusting him to use these methods and means. And that is what I understand to mean to trust the Lord. Now, we find the chief captain getting this, being forewarned, he's forearmed. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See, thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. Now, verse 23, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers. You see, a centurion had a hundred soldiers in hundred. And so make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen 200, and at the third hour of the night. Now, friends, this is quite an army that's going to escort Paul down to Caesarea. And again, somebody says, is this what you call trust in the Lord? Well, of course, it's the captain here that's doing it. But Paul had called for this type of protection. And again, this is perfectly legitimate. And Paul, again, is in the will of God in doing this. But it reveals the danger that there was to the life of Paul and that they intended to put him to death. Now we're told here, "...and they provide them beasts that they may set Paul on." and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Now, the governor was down at Caesarea. That was the place where Pilate had been. Apparently, Caesarea and the ruins are there today. It was a Roman city. It's a delightful place there on the coast. And I can understand why these Romans would rather live there than Jerusalem. Now, I do not mean to go against David. David loved Jerusalem. I go along with the Romans. I would take the coast city any time. It was such a delightful place when we were there. And I got very cold in Jerusalem. Now, will you notice? And now they're getting ready to send Paul down to Felix. He's the governor, and he's in Caesarea, and that removes him from the immediate danger. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Now, notice this letter, and it's after this manner, which means... Dr. Luke probably didn't have access to the letter, but he gives us the sense of it. And it may be literal. I'm not going to argue that, but Dr. Luke makes it clear that it was after this manner. Listen to him now, verse 26. Claudius, Lysias, under the most excellent governor, Felix, sendeth greeting. It's very formal, and you notice you don't sign letters in that day. You put your name up front, not at the end of the letter. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him 
having understood that he was a Roman. You see, this Roman official in Jerusalem just wants the governor to know he's doing his duty. He's protecting Roman citizens. That's good. Verse 28, And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth unto their counsel, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And actually, this Roman official in Jerusalem, he never did know exactly what the charge was against Paul, other than it pertained to that law. Now, verse 30, And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. That's a formal letter, isn't it? Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea, delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, he says, I'll hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Now, Paul is put in prison down at Caesarea, and he's waiting for his accusers to come. Now, friends, as we come to the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll recall that Paul had gone to Jerusalem. We believe he was in the will of God. And his appearance before the Sanhedrin there, which we saw the last time, it ended in a near riot. And Paul was rescued from the murderous hands of those that would have put him to death at that time. Now, very candidly, Paul had failed in gaining the sympathies of his brethren for the gospel ministry in which he was engaged. And I think there was a moment of mental depression and discouragement. And I'm sure that a man of lesser courage and baser metal would have wanted to quit and succumb to the circumstances that had taken place. And so the night following, the Lord gave his faithful servant a token of encouragement. And we saw that last time, back in verse 11 of chapter 23, let me refresh your mind again with it. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now, this man is not going to escape the fact that he won't have problems and difficulties and that he won't suffer, because he will. There were many trying experiences and hardships that were immediately before him. In fact, from here to his time of martyrdom, there was nothing but peril and danger. And by the way, hadn't it been that way from the very day that he was let down in a basket over the wall up at Damascus? Now, the events which transpired after the appearance before the Sanhedrin, they move in great rapidity and in quick succession. The enemies of Paul in Jerusalem, they plot to assassinate him. 
Paul learns of this plot through a nephew of his. And he has this nephew go before the chief captain, who in turn communicates with the governor. And Paul is sent with a communication to the governor in Caesarea. And Paul was removed secretly at night to Herod's judgment hall, where he was accorded good treatment, by the way. Now, after five days, Paul's accusers come down to press the charge before Felix the governor. Now, let's read in chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius, who informed the governor against Paul. Now, Tertullius was, we would call, the prosecuting attorney. He was a clever and well-prepared man, and the charge he brought was very well-prepared, too, by the way. It was brief, it was terse, and it was to the point. Notice the method that he used. And let me read verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullius began to accuse him. That is, began to accuse Paul, saying... Now, notice his approach, though, his introduction. Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. Now, you notice what he did. He began with the flattery of Felix, which, by the way, had nothing in the world to do with the charge at all. I think he did the best he could with the charges that he had. Now, listen to him. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Believe me, he's really buttering up the governor, is he not? Now, notice verse 4 here. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldst hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow. That's one way of speaking of Paul, is it not? And he says, "...and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes." Now, having begun with flattery, he's surely not flattering Paul the apostle. And may I say to you, he calls him a mover of sedition. He couldn't prove that, of course. And he makes a subtle insinuation here, by the way, up to the governor, not of his dereliction of duty, but on the part of Claudius Lysias, the chief captain. There's just here the faint breath of criticism. Now, will you listen to this? Verse 6 of chapter 24 of Acts. "...who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took, and would have judged according to our law." But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands. You see, he should have let us handle the case. And notice this, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so." That is, the religious rulers that came down. Now, this is the charge that he makes against Paul. 
And now we find Paul making his third defense, and he's making it before Felix. And later on, we'll see him make his defense, not only before him, but before Festus, and then before King Agrippa. Now, will you notice, as he moves down, and listen to Paul now, as he defends himself. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. What he's saying here is simply this. He said that he was delighted to present his case before Felix, and the reason was that he knew Felix had been a judge of the people a long time, and he understood their customs, and that what Paul's going to say now is not something that would be strange or foreign to him. He says, now, twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets." Now, Paul makes it very clear, if you'll notice here, he says to this man, I'm glad that you understand our customs, and I went up to Jerusalem to worship according to our customs. He said, I'm in agreement with my nation, but I must confess that what they call heresy, that's the way I worship God. And it's according to the message of our fathers, that is, the Old Testament. Now, verse 15, "...and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust." Now, if you notice that the resurrection is the very center of Christianity, has been from the beginning, friends. What think you of Christ is the test? What do you think of him? Did he die? Was he raised from the dead? And the real test is that. And Paul comes immediately to them. He says, they believe in a resurrection. I believe in a resurrection. But I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's already come back from the dead. Now, verse 16, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Now, this is... Paul speaking here, saying that what he's done, he's done for conscience' sake. Verse 17, Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Now he came to bring to the church in Jerusalem the gifts that he'd been taking up on this third missionary journey. And I have a notion it was a substantial gift. And he wanted to bring it with his own hand. Now he says, verse 18, "...whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object, 
if they had ought against me. Now, the real accusers, if there had been any, weren't present, you see. He said the charge that Tertullius says, he was stirring up people in the temple. Well, why aren't the people there to bring the charge that were being stirred up? Well, they weren't there. And Paul calls attention to it. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Let them tell about my appearance before the council if I did anything evil. Now, he says, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I'm called and questioned by you this day. And again, it was the resurrection. That, my friend, is the very heart of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins, buried, raised again the third day. That is the keystone. In fact, I think of Christianity as an arch. And one of the pillars that holds up one side of the arch is the death of Christ, and the other that holds it up is the resurrection of Christ. And, of course, without either one, the arch would fall. And the resurrection, therefore, being the very heart of the matter. Now, verse 22, "...and when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way..." He deferred them and said... Now, Felix had been hearing about this way that was being preached. That is, of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, here's a man that's the expert. Here's the man that can tell him all about it. And so he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I'll know the uttermost of your matter. In other words, he said, I'll wait till my official comes down and get the word from him. Uh, Apparently, it was contradictory testimony that was offered here. Tertullius is saying one thing. Paul is saying another. Now, he says, I'll defer making a judgment. And so he did not. Now, notice what happened. That meant that this crowd had to return back to Jerusalem and spend the night in a motel. And there wasn't any motels there then, so they went back to Jerusalem. Now, will you notice, this is something that's very important to see here. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister come unto him. Now, you notice that he's given this man a great deal of liberty. Actually, he should have freed Paul. But this man was a politician and an astute politician, And after now the accusers were gone, notice what Felix did after they've left. And now let me read verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, self-control or temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way, for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And the sinner will never have a convenient season to hear the gospel. Now, I want you to notice something here that we believe is very important. This man, Felix, now, knew something of the gospel, the way, and that 
is a synonymous term with what we call Christianity today or the Christian faith. It was called the way. I personally would like to see that name restored because Christianity is the most abused word today and it's watered down. And I heard a man the other day, a good preacher, say that we live in a Christian nation. We don't live in a Christian nation. This country is not a Christian nation by any stretch of the imagination. We got a whole lot of church members, but the number of Christians are certainly a minority today. Now, will you notice what takes place? Felix called Paul in to explain the gospel which had produced this entire situation. And he called Paul in and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, I have in my Bible a note in it. It calls this Paul's defense before Felix. I disagree with that. Paul wasn't defending himself here at all. What he's doing here in this second appearance before Felix is he's witnessing to him. He's trying to win him to the Lord. Now, will you notice the scriptural record here actually does not present this man Felix in his bad light as profane history does. And I'd like for you to know what a rascal he really was. Now, Felix, if you'd know the man, you must turn to the record of that day. Now, Felix was a freed slave who through cruelty and brutality had forged to the front, a man given to pleasure and licentiousness. And by the way, his very name means pleasure. Tacitus says this concerning him. Listen to this. Through all cruelty and licentiousness, he exercised the authority of a king with the spirit of a slave. Now, this was the man in whose hands Paul was placed. Yet Scripture does not condemn him. Now, his wife, Drusilla, was there alongside of him. And again, profane history turns the spotlight on her for us. She was a daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Her father killed James. You remember, we've already seen that in the book of Acts, James the Apostle, brother John. And the great uncle of this woman had slain John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these two, notice a couple of rascals, Felix and Drusilla, are in an exalted position. They probably would never have attended a church in which the gospel was preached. And they probably wouldn't have tuned in a radio They hear the Word of God, and therefore, they're just not going to hear it. I do not think they would have gone to hear Paul the Apostle if he'd come to town. But these two have their great opportunity that's given to them. Under favorable circumstances, they have a private interview with the greatest preacher of the grace of God that the world has ever seen. And God gives them a private sermon. Their palace became a church, and their throne almost became a mourner's bench. Oh, the wonder of God's grace to give these two a chance. The hour of salvation struck for them. The door of the kingdom was open to them. They had their opportunity. And this is in fulfillment of what the second psalm says, 
Be wise now, therefore, ye kings and ye judges of the earth. They should have listened a little better to the apostle Paul. I think they heard him with a great deal of interest. And I think Felix would like to have made a decision, but he didn't make a decision. Now, Paul reasoned with him of righteousness and of temperance or self-control and judgment. Now, this, by the way, makes a very good sermon. You probably heard a sermon on verse 25 here. Now, righteousness here is, I think, righteousness of law, but man cannot meet it. In other words, the law reveals that man is a sinner and he can't even present a legal righteousness that would be acceptable to God. Therefore, a sinner must have a standing before God and he can't provide it himself. So God provides that in Christ and the robe of righteousness comes down over those that believe. And that robe that the Lord Jesus wore, that these soldiers shot craps for beneath the cross, that robe has no romantic history at all. Some burly soldier won it, sweated it out. It was dropped in a corner, and a little serving maid picked it up after she held her nose, took it out, and burned it. But the robe of righteousness that comes down on those who trust Christ... That righteousness which Paul spoke of, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. That's Romans 3.22. It comes down upon all like a garment, if you please. Paul reasoned to this man of a righteousness that Christ provides the sinner when he trusts him. And now temperance is self-control. And this man was mastered by passion and cruelty. And these two, living in sin as they were, these two, this man Felix and his wife Drusilla, they were both great sinners and they did not know what real freedom was. Now, Paul spoke to them of judgment to come. That judgment to come is the great white throne. And friends, today your sins are either on you or they're on Christ. And if they're on Christ, you've trusted him, and he bore them 1,900 years ago. They're back there, and they're not in the future. But if your sin today is on you, you're yet to come up for judgment. And people don't like to hear about judgment to come. And this pair didn't like to hear it either. Maybe there's some listening today. But my friend, if your sin's not on Christ and you've not trusted him today, then you're going to come up for judgment. And you can tune the radio out right now, but you won't destroy the fact you're coming up for judgment. Now, this is where, of course, a great many preachers today soft-pedal it. Very few preachers touch this subject. I think the Bible preachers today, and thank God we have those throughout the land, but they today are the only ones that are touching on this at all. A man wrote me, in fact, he's a college professor in Virginia, and he said, I listened to you, and he said, I was about ready to turn you out when I found out you were a hellfire and damnation preacher. But he said, I noticed you didn't handle it in a crude way, and I noticed that you did offer a salvation, and he said, I continue to listen to you. Now, I think that hellfire and damnation is a pretty good subject today, but I think it ought to be handled 
in a proper way, not a crude way. My friend, you're coming up for judgment. Now, Paul talks to these two. Now, Paul appeared before this man Felix in the presence of Tertullius, the prosecuting attorney, and Ananias, the high priest, who've come down from Jerusalem with their coterie of helpers, religious leaders, and Paul defends himself. Well, Felix immediately can see that the charge brought against Paul could not stand at all, and Felix should let him off. But he doesn't because he's, first of all, a politician, and he doesn't do what is right, but what is politic as far as he is concerned. He has a private interview with Paul, and Paul apparently really touched him, but he postponed the day. And the very interesting thing is it's been proven out in the history of the world for 1,900 years that you can keep postponing making a decision for Christ until you come to the place when you can't make a decision for him at all and certainly not on the human plane that you've completely turned from him. That's the reason that most decisions that are made for Christ are made by young people. I'm sure that most of the folk I'm talking to today made a decision when they were young. We are seeing many old people come to Christ also. But actually, the greatest percentage come in youth. And that's the reason we ought to try to reach the young people also, that's the reason that a person need not think because he gets older that he's becoming smarter. He's just becoming more hardened to the gospel and reaches the place. I heard this years ago concerning the late Dr. George Truitt, the great prince of the pulpit in Dallas, Texas, that when he had, I think it was his 50th anniversary there, a lawyer friend of his came to him. He was not a Christian. And he came to him at the celebration, and he said, George, you and I came here to Dallas at the same time. You were a young man. I was a young lawyer. And he said, I must confess that when I first heard you, that you moved me a great deal. He said, very frankly, he said, there were nights I couldn't sleep. But he said, as the years wore on, he said, the day came, and he says, it's true today that I can listen to you, I enjoy hearing you, but you don't disturb me at all. And he laughed about it. He didn't realize how tragic it was, because he even added to that and said, and you're a much greater preacher today than you were at the beginning. Well, that is the tragedy, and it was the tragedy of that man, without him realizing that he actually had come to the place where he had always said, go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I'll call for thee. But that time never did come for the lawyer, and it has not come for a great many folk. Now, let me conclude that 24th chapter by reading now verse 26. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. He is a clever politician and a crook, by the way. He hoped he'd be bribed, and then he would let Paul off. Now, imagine this. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound, or show him a favor. In other words, he's a politician to the very end. He left Paul in prison. 
Either Paul's guilty or he's not guilty. And if he's not guilty, he should be freed. If he is guilty of what they said, then he should have been punished for it. And the fact it was treason that day, it would have cost him his life. Now, one or the other should have been done, but he should not have been left in prison for two years. Now, will you notice, as we come to chapter 25, we see now Paul before Festus. And Festus is the governor that just succeeded this man. I'm reading now. Now, when Festus was coming to the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Now you can see that this man Festus, he understood. I'm of the opinion that Felix had told him. He said, this man Paul, we've got in prison, and I think he explained the circumstances. And he said to him, he said, now we had to bring him down here. He'd been put to death. And so when he gets word that they want him to be brought to Jerusalem, oh, he said, I won't bring him up here. I'm going back to Caesarea myself. I don't want to wait up here at Jerusalem. Here's another man didn't like Jerusalem. That is, he liked Caesarea much better. Now, we've seen Paul before the mob on the steps of the castle in Jerusalem. We've seen him before the Sanhedrin. We've seen him before Felix. Then the private interview he had with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And apparently there were other meetings. Now before Festus, the new governor. And this is getting to be sort of a habit, wouldn't you think? And Paul appearing before these rulers. And this certainly must have been rather tedious for Paul, something to try his patience. However, he rejoiced in the opportunity accorded him in testifying before these high political figures of their Roman Empire. Because, you see, when God apprehended Paul, he announced that this son and servant of his, that is, Paul, would bear his name before Rulers and before kings. Now, this is being fulfilled here. And we'll see King Agrippa next time. Paul will appear before him. And Paul does each time with a great deal of zest and excitement in telling about what Jesus Christ has done for him. Now, you'll recall that last time we saw Paul before Felix and his wife, Drusilla. There, Paul witnessed a good confession of Jesus Christ. Felix trembled in the wonderful grace of God. But the rascality, the cupidity, and covetousness of this man triumphed. He had his chance. He wanted a bribe, not salvation. For two years, Paul languished there in prison. He was detained. Those are silent years in the life of the apostle Paul. But perhaps the great apostle chafed under it all. Nevertheless, the hand of God was manifested, and Festus succeeded to the place of governorship. The enemies in Jerusalem, as we see here, immediately turned to the new governor to have Paul brought to Jerusalem. On the way, they intended to ambush the party, slay Paul. Whether Festus was aware of this matters not. I think he was. However, he refused to accede to their demands. 
he requested that they come down to Caesarea, which they did. Now, let's move down here. And this is what happened. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man, if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down under Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. Now, Paul will defend himself. Let me turn that around. Paul is going to present the gospel to this man also. And notice, if you want to call it defense, what Paul does here. We find that Paul is brought in. The Jews came down from Jerusalem. They stood round about, laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, now Paul is permitted to speak, and we have his message again. It's called his defense. Now, will you notice? While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem? and there be judged of these things before me. Now, you'll notice the cupidity of this man Festus. Oh, he's a rascal also. And Paul is in the midst of a den of not only thieves, but rascals. Now, notice verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. Now, there are those who think Paul made a mistake here. They think that Paul should not have appealed to Caesar, that he should have just carried his case here before Festus. But, my friend, don't you see that had Paul acceded to the desires of Festus, and Festus was going to take him up to Jerusalem, And apparently, he was maybe receiving something under the table by way of bribe from those in Jerusalem. And I find that Paul did not make a mistake here. I'm in disagreement with these who think that Paul did make a mistake. I'm rather reluctant to criticize Paul, by the way. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he exercised his right. It was a normal thing for him to do because to go to Jerusalem would have meant he'd have been put to death. Now, Paul does not purposefully make himself a martyr. In fact, he avoided that. My friend, there are a great many people today that they wear a hair shirt, and God didn't give it to them. Now, don't wear a hair shirt unless God gives you one. great many people today, they like to take the position of a martyr. And I've had any number of people that have told me that, well, you can just rejoice that you have cancer because now you can suffer for Christ and maybe die for him. Well, I want you to know, friends, that's not my position. I want to get rid of it, and I want to live. I think that there's something wrong with a person, not only spiritually, but mentally. That feels like that they want to put on a hair shirt and lie on a cold slab. Now, Martin Luther tried that and found out it didn't work. God had appeared to Paul, 
two years previously and promised them a trip there. The Lord Jesus said, you're going to appear for me in Rome. You see, God said you're going to appear before kings and rulers, and that's what's taking place. And Paul had said to the Romans, you pray that by the will of God that I might come unto you. And friends, I think he went to Rome by the will of God, but he was in chains. That was God's method for him. Will you notice, though, here, verse 11, I detect just a note of impatience at the injustice of these Roman officials in detaining him without adequate charges and proof. Let me read verse 11. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Now, don't you detect there just a little note of impatience? Rome was noted for its justice, and Paul respected authority. And he's making a legal appeal. He's resting on his Roman citizenship. And you'll recall that the night that our Lord was arrested, that John knew the folk there, and they knew him. He entered in, warmed himself. He didn't deny the Lord, but Simon Peter did. The very interesting thing is that for some of us, God will lead us one way. And for others, he'll lead us another way. And this man, Paul, is a Roman citizen. man said to me, he and his wife are very wonderful Christians. The Lord blessed them materially. And they built a lovely home, a home in which I always delight to visit. And he told me that one of the reasons he wanted to open his home and use it as much for Christian witness and testimony was because he felt under conviction that he had a nice home. Well, I told him, I said, it ever occurred to you that God bless you materially, that you could build a nice home? And he knew you were the kind of man that would use it for him. I said, you can pillow your head each night in sweet sleep, knowing that you're in the will of God, and thank him for that lovely home. And the Lord didn't give me a home like that. And I'm of the opinion he doesn't intend me to use my home for that type of thing. May I say to you, what's the Lord done for you, friend? Whatever it is, you should use it for him. I had a man that was city commissioner when I was pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. And you know something? I never paid a parking ticket the whole time I was there. I just always took him up to his office and left him on his desk. He took care of him. Somebody says, you shouldn't have done that. Well, I won't ask you a question. Why shouldn't I have done that? As a privilege I had then. You want to know something? I don't have that privilege now at all. I'm very careful, I must admit. And I also want to say that I don't think the Lord wants me now to spend time parking and going in and seeing folks. In that day, it was essential that I do that. May I say to you, whatever the Lord has done for you to put in your hand, use it for him. What's that in your hand, Moses? What's a rod? Well, use it for God. That's the whole thought, my beloved. And I think that's the whole thought. That's here. Paul's a Roman citizen. That's the rod in his hand. He's going to use it. And I say amen to him. I don't think Paul made a mistake here at all. Now, will you notice what happens here? Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered. 
Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Under Caesar shalt thou go. And the whole thought here is just simply this, that this man Festus is forced to concur with the apostle Paul at this particular point. Now, let me read verse 13 of chapter 25 of Acts. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came under Caesarea to salute Festus. Well, you see, the new governor has come into office, so the king comes over to visit him. You know, I have a notion these politicians, they work together, you know. They all belong to the same party. Now, will you notice, I'll read verse 14. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There's a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Now, you see, he stayed there quite a few days, by the way. He was there several days. And during that time, they ran out of conversation. You know, even a king and a governor are going to run out of things to talk about. And I think that in a lull in the conversation, Festus says, Oh, by the way, I should tell you about a prisoner that we have here. It's an odd, unusual case. His name is Paul the Apostle. He's been arrested and was brought down here by Felix. And Felix left him over. And I don't know what to do with him other than now he's appealed to Caesar. And I'd like for you to know about it. Now, notice as they continue their conversation, at least Festus. He says, "...about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him." And that's Acts twenty-five fifteen. Now notice verse 16. "...to whom I answered, it's not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Now, I'd like to call your attention especially to this, for the very simple reason that we think that Roman justice was not justice. Now, it went awry in the case of the Lord Jesus, and also in the case of Paul the Apostle. But it was because of crooked politicians. It was not because of Roman law. Roman law was that, and we have it today, that no man can be sentenced to death until he's brought into the presence of his accusers and that the thing they accuse him of be established. Now, that had not taken place in the life of the apostle Paul. Now, will you notice verse 17? Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I suppose, but had certain questions against them of their own superstition, that is, their own religion, and of one Jesus which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And now you see what Paul has said to this man Festus. What did he present to him? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, verse 20. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. 
But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. Now, Agrippa apparently had heard about Paul, and he wanted to hear him, and he wanted to know about the charge and wanted to know what Paul would have to say, so that they've arranged now for the meeting. Prophecies being fulfilled, he's going to appear before kings. Verse 23, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city. At Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Now, actually, the governor here, Festus, was on a hot seat. Here is a prisoner appealed to Rome, and the charge against him is one of crimes that he should die. But there are no crimes he's committed. What are you going to do with a prisoner like this? And so he's asked King Agrippa to help him out, and Agrippa wanted to hear him. 